what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. On April 11th, 2022, over 15,000 Etsy sellers put their shops on vacation mode and went on strike. They spoke out against Etsy's latest fee increase, as well as a mandatory program that cost them additional fees, and the Star Seller Program, which tried to establish untenable expectations on sellers. Today, the petition they circulated with their demands has received over 80,000 signatures. Now, you've probably seen unionizing efforts in the news. The organizing in Amazon warehouses, in Starbucks stores, and in newsrooms. These union efforts are indeed newsworthy and exciting. But the Etsy seller strike represents something different. It's the collective action of non-employee workers toward a company that does not employ them. And to me, that's fascinating. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy with your humanity intact. This is the next episode in our series, Context Clues. We're tackling tough questions about how we do business with economic, sociological, psychological, and philosophical context. Now, my guess is that you're not an Etsy seller. Maybe you've never even considered the roles of unions or labor organizing in the contemporary economy, and especially not as it relates to you as a small business owner or independent worker. But the Etsy seller strike has something to teach all of us about who is benefiting from our work and how they control what we produce. In this episode, I'm going to unpack the Etsy seller strike to answer a key question. Who do we really work for? We'll talk about our relationship to the platforms we use, how we generate immense value that we don't profit from, the role of consumers and creators in terms of labor, and why it seems so damn hard to quit. When I started blogging with the intention of making a living at it back in 2009, my mom had already been selling online for a couple of years. Early on, she figured out how to make an online store using HTML tables and PayPal buttons. Then she found Etsy and started a shop there. It didn't take long before I was obsessed with Etsy. And my first website, a blog about indie makers in Pennsylvania, gave me an excuse to browse through the site for hours. I was in awe of the creativity and ambition of the people who set trends and made a name for themselves at the time. As one of the first people focusing on the market there, I was lucky to get swept up in the frenzy. I traveled to Etsy headquarters to speak to or consult with sellers. I developed relationships with Etsy team members. My articles were often floating around the Etsy seller message boards. I was immersed in that world when Etsy seller culture started a dramatic shift. It wasn't the shift that's most apparent today, the influx of resellers, pay-to-play placements, and a lack of meaningful curation. That's an ongoing economic shift as a result of the company going public back in 2015. 
The shift I was there for was a cultural shift, the professionalization of doing what you love. In the early years of Etsy, a maker could be relatively successful by showing up with great work for sale. But as the platform grew, it took more and more work to achieve even sustenance-level sales. Makers needed to leave time to post on social media, write on a blog, regularly update their product listings, develop wholesale catalogs, network with other makers, and more. And I had many opportunities to share how to do just that at trade shows, local guilds, and even at Etsy headquarters. Now, all of these business-building activities probably don't sound surprising a decade later. But back in 2010, 2011, 2012, the idea of building a business rather than simply doing what you love as a crafter, maker, or artist was fairly novel. And that was especially true for those who hadn't envisioned life as a creative. Now, today, it seems everyone knows the shoulds and supposed tos of running and marketing a small business, even if they're loath to do them. But then... The idea that you might need to set aside a few hours a week to actually communicate with potential customers was often jarring. Many Etsy sellers started their shops with the idea that all they needed to do was put their wares up for sale. The platform would do the rest. And while very early on, like on any platform, there was some truth to that, by 2010 or so, that expectation was flat wrong. Last month, over a decade later, thousands of Etsy sellers announced their intention to strike. They'd take collective action and put their shops on vacation mode for a week. They'd also encourage shoppers to boycott the platform at that time as well. The strike received widespread media coverage, especially among publications with a highly educated, capitalism-skeptical audience. Even Etsy's founder, Rob Kalin, expressed his solidarity after more than seven years of silence on Etsy's trajectory since his departure. Most coverage focused on the strikers' demands, lower fees, more say in whether they participate in platform-wide marketing efforts, and better regulation of the resellers who have come to dominate the platform. Many small businesses are born with a dream to be free from corporate America. But as an Etsy strike organizer tells me, slapping on extra fees on shop owners can take away from that independence. But what really caught my eye about the Etsy strike was how it encapsulated the problems with platform capitalism and the inherent precarity that comes from trying to hustle our way to meeting our needs. And the Etsy strike raised important questions about our relationships to the platforms we use to run our businesses. Are they service providers? Are they tools? Are these platforms our bosses? Etsy strike organizer Christy Cassidy referenced Etsy's founding vision, keeping commerce human and democratizing access to entrepreneurship. Here's Rob Kalin explaining his vision to the World Economic Forum back in 2008. Etsy is an online handmade marketplace. And what this means is the handmade side is that the transaction is always human, that you're always buying and interacting directly with the person who's making and selling you what you're getting. And for the people who are making things, it's providing them with a a global online marketplace for them to sell and there's this vision that you know if you're empowering lots of people to make their living making things that you can have millions of local living economies around the world and that these millions of local living economies are more sustainable for the planet than are a small number of huge conglomerate companies. Etsy is really trying to empower millions of people to make their own living wherever they are in their own local economy but giving them access to a 
um, a global marketplace. Christy Cassidy questioned whether that founding vision was still important to executives and shareholders. And she named the fact that the vast majority of Etsy sellers are women, non-binary people, LGBTQ people, and people of color, meaning that any decisions that Etsy makes, which hurts sellers, disproportionately hurts people who are already economically marginalized. Cassidy wrote, quote, What began as an experiment in marketplace democracy has come to resemble a dictatorial relationship between a faceless tech empire and millions of exploited majority women craftspeople. Cassidy also cleverly made the connection to Etsy as both a workplace and as a retail store. She pointed to how rental and eviction laws don't apply to virtual storefronts, even if the mechanisms at play are the same. Etsy can change the rent paid by sellers or adjust the terms of their lease whenever it wants. Etsy can also close down a shop it claims violates its terms of service without a transparent appeal process. And she drew a connection between labor laws that mandate wage payment and the fact that Etsy can withhold payments without even the chance to speak with the company. Now, it's easy to see Etsy sellers as business owners and Etsy buyers as consumers. But Etsy sellers are as much people who work for Etsy, creating what Etsy makes a profit from, as they are business owners in their own right. The idea that workers have certain rights has been broadly agreed upon, even if those rights are regularly under attack. Yet Etsy sellers or Lyft drivers, DoorDashers, or TikTokers don't have the same rights regardless of how a company uses their labor to make its product and generate profit. We have this employer-employee relationship with Etsy, but we have none of the protections that employees have. So we are even less powerful than an employee strike. That's Etsy seller Lori Peterson, one of the people helping to organize the strike. What rights should Etsy sellers and other non-employee workers have when dealing with the platforms that sell their labor? I don't know. Shareholders will shareholder and free markets will free market. But the question intrigues me. And all of the questions that ripple out from it intrigue me too. And all of those questions hinge on how we understand who we work for and what our relationship to that entity should be. 20 or 30 years ago, the companies we worked for provided for our most basic needs, either directly or indirectly. Today, there are relatively few jobs that provide non-wage benefits, security, or even sufficient wages. In 2012, Nilifer Merchant wrote that in today's social era, work has been freed from jobs. And from an employer perspective, this is really exciting. No longer does a company need to create full-time positions to produce the product it sells. The work can be done by remote contractors at a fraction of the cost or by passionate users for free. A company's overhead can be dramatically reduced and innovation can go to market more quickly. We're now free to pursue a portfolio of work rather than show up at an office day after day. This arrangement is sold as flexibility and personal choice, but it's an arrangement that puts the burden of survival squarely on the individual, even though just 15 or 20 years ago, there was a mutually beneficial sharing of responsibility between employer and worker. 
Now, as someone who thinks about small business and the future of work, I'm really interested in the increase in labor organizing among non-employee workers, whether that's at Uber, DoorDash, or Etsy. I'm curious what it tells us about the growing consensus that work today doesn't work. After all, strikes have been largely deployed by employee unions to organize for better working conditions, higher pay, and more security. While a non-employee strike might have similar demands on the surface, there's a fundamental question of labor relationship that can't be ignored. What does it mean to be a worker without an employer? Now, if you're wondering what this has to do with you as a business owner or freelancer, I get it. The thing is, most of us are working on behalf of companies that are not our employers. This labor is largely considered a key part of doing what you love or following your passion. And that labor is engaging online, posting on Facebook or Instagram, sharing videos on TikTok or YouTube, networking on LinkedIn, responding to posts or clicking on ads on any of these platforms. Now, your next question might be, is that really labor? And the answer is yes. Yes, because with every action you take online, you are producing the goods these companies sell. Data. I think we all know that data is the lifeblood of internet companies. But when we think of data as a capital asset, without considering how that asset is produced, we miss out on the real story. So how is data produced? Activity. And who creates that activity? We do. So again, we are producing the goods that these companies sell. That's labor. Now, in the case of Etsy, this is pretty easy to see. The real product, as far as the company is concerned, isn't the piece of jewelry or the hand-stitched quilt. It's the product listing. Etsy charges a fee to list an item. And then it takes a cut of the sale of that listing, too. To Etsy, it doesn't matter whether what sells is a quilt, a necklace, or a vintage paint-by-number. What matters is that something sells. And so it's going to incentivize whatever activity produces those sales. Your job becomes producing listings rather than doing what you love to do. Without sellers listing items, Etsy has no inventory, nothing to sell. Just like if no one shows up to the assembly line, Ford has no Mustangs to sell. Once you start to think about what the real product of any platform is, you start to see how every platform is taking our free labor for granted. Facebook, for instance, is in the business of profiling. Your activity, both as a consumer and as a creator on that platform is what generates your profile. Each user profile is packaged into audiences, which are then sold off as targeted interests to advertisers. Here's U.S. Representative Joseph Kennedy asking Mark Zuckerberg about this during his appearance before the House Energy and Commerce Committee in 2018. Reduce the 
essentially, does the f advertisers that uh, are using your platform, do they get access to information that the user does not actually think is either one, being generated, or two, is public? Understanding that, yes, if you dive into the, the details of your, your platform, users might be able to shut that off. But I think one of the challenges with the trust here is that there's an awful lot of information that's generated that people don't think that they're generating and that advertisers are being able to target because Facebook collects it. Yes. So, Congressman, my understanding is that the targeting options that are, that are available for advertisers are generally things that are based on what people share. Now, once an advertiser um, chooses how they want to target something, Facebook also does its own work to help um, rank and determine which ads are going to be interesting to which people. So we may use metadata or other um, behaviors of what you've um, shown that you're interested in a newsfeed or other places um, in order to make our systems more relevant to you. Uh, but that's a little bit different from giving that as an option to an advertiser, if that makes sense. Right. But then I guess the question back to... Instagram is in the attention business. The longer you keep scrolling, the more ad inventory the platform has to sell. When you create content, you're helping Instagram maintain users' attention. The stickier the content, the longer a user pays attention. If no one is scrolling, if no one's paying attention, then they have no ad inventory. Uber sells instant availability. Without drivers in their cars waiting for their next pickup, their value proposition doesn't work. So every minute that Uber drivers spend behind the wheel waiting for a pickup is a minute of free labor that Uber is capitalizing on. YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Fiverr, Lyft, DoorDash, the business models are all a little different, but they all rely on free labor to work. Contrast that with a service to which you pay a monthly fee. You pay your email marketing platform, your web host, your internet provider. You are their customer. You contract with them to provide a service for an agreed-upon rate. But to platform companies, you're not the customer. You're a user, which in this case translates to worker. The more time you spend on the data assembly line, the happier the platform is and the more money it makes. And yet that platform owes you nothing. As Jeanette Winterson put it in 12 Bytes, Whatever your day job, you, me, all of us are working for the tech companies for no pay. Free stuff is not free. Give your data, give yourself. You're a worker without an employer. Now that's probably not a deal anyone would take willingly. That is working for free at risk of serious moral injury and psychological harm for the benefit of venture capitalists and their mega yachts. So they've had to sell it to us, and they've sold us on this idea that they exist as tools for doing what you love, for self-actualization, for achieving your dreams. The more I think about the amount of free work I've done on behalf of platforms, the more astounded I am that this arrangement is even legal. My guess is that you're also a bit astounded at this point, but probably still a little skeptical. You might be thinking, but Tara, aren't you getting a pretty awesome benefit out of building an audience on these platforms? 
Haven't successful brands gotten started on Etsy before scaling up to their own shop? Aren't we trading our work to be connected with our friends and family and maybe customers too? And besides, how would I market my business if it weren't for these platforms? So yeah, I've made good money, landed a book deal, contracted a bunch of speaking gigs. I've met incredible people, but I've traded a lot of time and emotional energy for those successes. And it would be one thing if I saw Instagram or Twitter as just work, but these apps live on the devices that go with me everywhere. They blend friends and family and marketing in a way that is clearly destructive. These platforms have colonized my mind so that I'm always thinking about what I can share next. I spoke with someone the other day who told me she'd tried to think of a way to post a picture of all the free time she'd created for herself. So she took a screenshot of her empty calendar and posted it. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. She turned free time into work time by stepping back up to the data assembly line under the guise that she was doing something good for herself and her followers. To put it another way, Imagine that you're at a conference for work, maybe a marketing conference or coaching conference or a podcasting conference. On the last evening, there's a big party. Everyone is going to dance and enjoy themselves after a few days of learning and networking. The conference, it's work, but the after party, that's fun, right? No, the party is work too, even if it is fun. The exhibition hall is work, the hallways are work, the restroom is work. I can't tell you how many times people have introduced themselves or asked me questions in the restroom. Now at this point, I have a pretty good idea that when I show up at a conference, I'm working 24 seven. And I make sure that my calendar the next week has enough room for me to recover from all of that high energy work time. But with the platforms we use, the work is hidden. We don't realize how much we're still working when we're snapping pics, checking mentions, or updating a product listing. It's just what we do, right? Every time I talk with someone who's thinking about quitting social media or dramatically changing their strategy, the phrase always on comes up. The tools we use, the companies we labor on behalf of have created an environment in which we're always available, always on edge, always thinking about the next post. At the end of 2021, I spoke with Tyler McCall as research for a piece about how the great resignation was playing out among small business owners. He built a successful online business and a following of over 50,000 fans on Instagram, but things weren't feeling quite right. I tested every single variable in my business to try and change the outcome of how I was feeling, which was exhausted, burnt out, overwhelmed, tired of being online, tired of being very visible, tired of running a personal brand business. And no matter what variable I changed in the equation, the answer was never correct at the end of the problem. And then I thought, wait, I'm like trying to solve the wrong problem, I think, by changing all of these variables. Like I need to go solve a new problem. Tyler told me that one of the most harmful aspects of running his business was how he had to be always on. For a number of years, it was just being very present on social media through the outward content and then very present through uh, individual one-on-one -on -one conversations through direct messages. I mean, there was a time 
especially when Instagram stories are at their height, like I would say 20, late 2018 into 2019 into very early 2020, um, where I was probably on Instagram maybe five to six hours a day, um, seven days a week. Um, I would document my life on Insta stories. I had different types of content I would create on Insta stories. <laughs> I, I mean, I remember days when I would like open up my phone in the morning to, you know, a hundred, 150 direct messages. And then you're just spending your day kind of, you know, trudging through all of those conversations and answering questions and just being, I, I feel like the biggest thing through that, it was just like presence. It was like always being on. Tyler decided to take a break from social media. He spent June 2021 until September 2021 away from his 50,000 Instagram followers. Tyler needed some time to reconnect with what he actually wanted from social media and his business. I cannot keep up. I could not do enough. And that was just ringing through my head. So I thought, okay, let me just cut off all of the inputs. Let me get off of social media. And that can then help me get some more clarity of mind and really ask that question of what actually belongs to me? What is not an idea or a message or a belief that is being programmed into my mind by someone either nefariously or with the best of intentions because they are cheering for and supporting and uplifting entrepreneurs. It didn't really matter the intention. It was the impact it was creating. And this impact of me feeling like I was not doing enough, I wasn't enough, I needed to be different, I needed to make more. And also feeling like it was this kind of perpetual hamster wheel of doing, making, and creating that was never really going to end. And it created so much anxiety for me and so much overwhelm. Now, it's worth saying here that the people who are counseling small business owners and creators to post more and more and more content and host more and more and more direct message conversations, they're subject to the same platform incentives that we've been talking about here. I didn't want to uh, have a business that required me to always be on and to always be visible and always available to an audience online that social media in general was something that I needed to cut back on. And I think a lot of the conversation about social media is interesting because I think a lot of times people talk about it from the consumption perspective. And I definitely had some issues with, you know, I, I feel like over-consuming content on social media. But for me, it was the pressure to create and post and share and document that was creating this like full body no type of sensation for myself. And even now, if I think about it for too long, <laughs> if I get into it too deep, it creates a lot of anxiety for me um, because I lived my life online so much for so many years. And today it feels just completely incompatible to how I want to live my life. I'm still very much on social. I still create and share, but it's much more on my own terms today. And it's about my life and my interests and not about business or kind of the, the brandification of who I inherently am. Now, I am the first to admit that living my life online has had huge benefits for me. And Tyler's seen the benefits of it too. But the incentives have changed. It's harder to connect with people when we're all performing the same content dance. 
It's easier to forget your own vision or creative drive when algorithms forcefully nudge you in a particular direction. It's one thing to spend most of your day working in service of your own ideas. It's another to spend most of your day working for the platform. In 1972, four women, Selma James, Sylvia Federici, Bridget Gaultier, and Maria Rose Della Costa created the Wages for Housework movement. The most superficial interpretation of their demands was to see the unpaid work that happens inside the home as real work, and therefore deserving of pay. But Wages for Housework wasn't really about the pay itself. It was about exposing the labor of care work as a fundamental component of capitalism. The white middle-class family structure had men going to work for a wage that would sustain a household. That man came home at the end of the day to a wife whose job was to sustain him with food, with companionship, with pleasure, with a refuge from work. Companies depended on their focused, productive workers having someone to support them at home so that they could truly rest between workdays. Women, the Wages for Housework movement argued, never got to rest. The home was their work site, and if the nexus of their activity was the home, well then, they were always at work. Without housework, child rearing, and care work, the labor force would start to break down. Waged workers wouldn't be as productive. Retiring workers wouldn't be replaced by young workers. This is reproductive labor. Reproductive labor is all the work needed to sustain a productive workforce for generations, writes Angela Garbus in her book, Essential Labor. Reproductive labor is the work that's done to feed, clothe, and provide rest for workers, former workers, and future workers, including ourselves. Now, I know what you're thinking. It's what a lot of people thought at the time, too. Care work is done out of love. It shouldn't be a financial transaction. Except we pay people to care all the time. Teachers, daycare workers, housekeepers, nannies. But because the vast majority of reproductive labor and care work is unpaid, we feel justified in exploiting people to do this work by paying them unlivable wages with few, if any, benefits. Demanding wages for housework throws that exploitation into question. Sylvia Federici makes it clear that the goal of Wages for Housework wasn't to continue doing the things the same way while collecting a paycheck. Their goal was to provide the basis for refusing to do the work in the same way. She writes, quote, Capital had to convince us that it is a natural, unavoidable, and even fulfilling activity to make us accept working without a wage. Wages for Housework pushed back against the very idea that care was the natural work of women. They didn't want housework divided up equally between partners. They wanted a whole new way of conceiving of reproductive labor, a way that prioritizes interdependence and mutual concern. It struck me while researching this episode that the theory behind the Wages for Housework movement is extremely similar to contemporary analysis of the relationship between platforms and users. 
for a certain segment of workers, creating content has come to seem natural. Creating content is unavoidable. Creating content is even fulfilling. When you don't see a housewife as a worker, it's easy to not see platform users as workers either. When you don't see reproductive labor as labor, it's easy to not see creative labor as labor. It's nearly impossible to see the value being created. Adrian Dobb put it this way, quote, the problem isn't that the act of providing content is ignored or uncompensated, but rather that it isn't recognized as labor. It's not recognized as labor the same way housework is not recognized as labor. We've uncritically accepted an arrangement as natural and innate to benefit existing power structures. So I ask you, can you imagine your business without social media? I hear from a lot of business owners and freelancers that tell me they'd quit Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn if they could. Small businesses, coaching businesses, consulting businesses, marketing agencies, design firms, these things all existed before social media. They existed before having a fancy website was even possible. And yet it's easier to imagine the end of your business than it is to imagine the end of social media, to paraphrase Mark Fisher, who paraphrased Jameson and Zizek. And like Mark Fisher, who described capitalist realism, I might call this belief social media realism. The platforms that gladly benefit from our free labor have done such a good job integrating themselves into our lives and work that it's impossible to imagine a world in which we don't have access to them. Even though we lived without them for a very long time. I mean, I was already an internet geek before MySpace and Facebook were even invented. It's possible to be very online without being very on social media. At this point, I think the question to ask is not merely, should I quit social media or not? Or even, can my business survive without social media? The question we need to be asking is, who do we work for? When we check Instagram before going to bed or post a story on a Saturday morning, are we doing something natural? Or are we working to benefit a venture capital firm somewhere? When we rack our brains to figure out how to get more followers or post more content, what exactly is the impulse driving that brainstorm? I don't believe there are any clear-cut answers here. I like being on social media most of the time. But there are options. You can walk away from this whole game the way Tyler has chosen to do. You can advocate for change the way Etsy strike organizers are. You can focus on creative work that's less dependent on algorithms, as I have. You can quit social media completely. Or... You can choose your own path. If what works is helping you think differently about how you're navigating the 21st century economy, please share the show with a friend. The easiest way to do that is through Podlink. You can find the show at pod.link slash whatworks. And that page will allow anyone you share the show with 
to easily open their favorite podcast app and start listening. That's pod.link slash whatworks. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Glazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was edited by me, Tara McMullen, and Marty Seafelt. Our executive producer is Sean McMullen. What Works is recorded and produced on the ancestral homelands of the Susquehannock people. The Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Katunaha Nation. I had to face on myself so I could see it clear. They had me face on myself just looking in the mirror. Type of problems that sit on your mental. When you sleeping on the cot living out the rental. No incidentals, no life insurance, ain't had no dental.